Good morning, all. I want to thank Jim Grinnell for leaving this, this gold star up here for me. I feel like a kid in kindergarten got a gold star. for I don't know why he left it for me, but thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm going to leave it right here so I'll be inspired as I preach today. We heard this morning in our Advent liturgy, okay, where did my, it's right there. We heard today in our Advent liturgy that for 430 years, heaven was silent. That's 430 years of waiting. Think of that. That's what our Advent liturgy said today. God's people, the people of Israel, waited through 430 years of the silence of God, longing to see him move, to see him speak. They waited for his first coming even longer than that because the promise of his first coming, if we go back to Genesis 3 where we first see the hint of a promise of a redeemer. Now we've been waiting now for 2,000 years for his second coming, his second advent. So though it's very much a part of life, we hate waiting, don't we? I hate waiting. So I'm not going to project that on you if maybe it's Maybe you're a more patient person than I am, but it's part of our human nature. We want it now. And we see this pretty much everywhere in our existence. We see it in traffic. That's where I experience it the uh, worst way. That amen you heard was from the corner where Barb, under her breath, said amen. At home, we hate waiting on our food, don't we, to be ready. So we have microwave ovens, right? So we don't have to wait. Stephen Wright said, I just bought a microwave fireplace You can spend an evening in front of the fire in only eight minutes. (laughs) We, We wait a lot. We wait in doctor's offices, don't we? So much so that even kids get it that we wait in doctor's offices. Like this little kid playing said, Billy and I are playing doctor. So far, I've kept him waiting three hours. Gonna be a good doctor, this one. We wait in emergency rooms. We wait in the uh, motor vehicle uh, bureau. How about on telephone hold? You've been on hold, you get caught with the cable or phone company or almost anything where you have to go through voicemail hell to actually talk to a real person. Kind of like this. Your call is very important to us, so please continue to hold. A skeleton there. Or maybe like this. At this time, we'd like to remind you to eat and drink at regular intervals. Thank you for continuing to hold. That would be good. You know, usually they have some kind of really obnoxious, annoying music on there, and it's fine for about 30 seconds, but not for 15 minutes. It's just not. My only hope is that some company will get this from me. There's this voicemail greeting I'd like to leave when I'm away, and that's, I'm currently out of the office and can be reached by waiting until I get back. (laughs) Just a small measure of revenge for all the time I've spent waiting on eternal hold. We're not generally very good at waiting, are we? And we're not very patient for anything. But truly, when we're hurting, waiting isn't very funny. When we're hurting emotionally, when we're hurting physically, when we're hurting spiritually. But in the Word, we read about such a thing that the Bible calls the fullness of time. There is such a thing as God's perfect time, the right time, when our waiting is over. It's a time when all that must be accomplished for something to happen actually happens. It's complete. It's filled up. It's filled with all the things that had to happen before the time was perfect and right. 
We see this in Scripture with the first advent of Jesus. We read in Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what happened is that God sent his Son at the right moment in human history when God's providential oversight of the events of the world had directed and prepared peoples and nations for the incarnation and ministry of Christ and for the proclamation of the gospel. So the people of Israel waited for their deliverer. They waited in several different contexts. They waited when they were captive in Egypt, right? They waited after that for the coming of the Messiah. They waited when they were uh, held captive in different places when, when various nations uh, took them away. But the promised Messiah was the hope of Israel. In our human frailty, waiting seems to be the enemy of hope. So today we lit the Advent candle of hope, remembering that the people of Israel waited. They waited with hope that their deliverer would come. And, of course, the birth of Jesus began the fulfillment of that hope. So this morning we're going to look at this theme of hope appropriate on this first Sunday of Advent. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you'll read the newspaper or watch or listen to TV news or radio news or read news online, and sometimes you find yourself just shaking your head in amazement and dismay at the state of our culture, at the state of our country, at the state of our world. You read of more bombings in the Middle East or even here in America. You read of terrorist attacks somewhere in the world. Closer to home, you read about or hear about some child being abused in some way by their own parent. Or you see that our sex-saturated culture where behavior that as little as 25 years ago that would have embarrassed anyone is now visualized and celebrated in movies and television, and primetime television. Or to get even more personal and a little bit closer still to home for some of us, you've been sick and you can't get better. You or a loved one is facing an illness or disease that won't go away. Or you're facing a mountain of debt that seems impossible to climb. Or you have a loved one who's just spiritually lost and not in the least bit interested in the things of God, and they're living like that. Perhaps you're stuck in an awful job, just keeping your head above water day by day. Or maybe it's not a really bad job, but it's just absolutely overwhelming. You have a relationship with someone you love that's not all it should be, not all that you want it to be, and it's making you miserable. You have a sin problem that you cannot seem to overcome despite months or maybe years of trying These kinds of things sometimes include physical pain, but often I think it's the emotional pain that's so much more difficult and overwhelming for us frail creatures. Or maybe it's both. It's enough to make you feel hopeless. It's enough to make you despair. Despair is a loss of hope. It's the opposite of hope. The definition of despair is to be hopeless, to have no hope to give up all hope or expectation, to be overcome by a sense of futility or defeat. It's from the Latin word desperare, 
which means literally to be hopeless. There's actually a website called despair.com. You might want to visit this for your Christmas gift giving. They make fun of those inspirational and motivational posters or calendars. It's kind of an anti-inspirational or maybe demotivational list of products. Here's some catchy sayings you can find on posters and other items. Despair. It's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. Adversity. That which does not kill me postpones the inevitable. Defeat. For every winner, there are dozens of losers. Odds are you're one of them. Dysfunction. The only consistent feature in all your dissatisfying relationships is you. Problems. No matter how great and destructive your problems may seem now, remember, you've probably only seen the tip of them. And finally, there's this one. Give up. Hanging in there just makes you look like an even bigger loser. You can buy these on posters and calendars just in time for Christmas gift giving. Now, despair and hopelessness are defined by Scripture as being without God. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Remember that at that time, referring to believers before they came to Christ, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What a thing to consider. Think about that. Without hope. Being without hope is inseparable from being without God. If you're without God, you are without hope by definition, by biblical definition. Yet, when we are in Christ, we can always, always have hope. So the admonition for all of us this morning is this. Don't lose hope, folks. Don't lose hope. Why? Why shouldn't we lose hope? We don't need to lose hope because our deliverer is coming. Our deliverer is coming. My deliverer is coming. That's the title of this morning's message, and it's the word of God to me. And I also believe, knowing what I know about so many of your lives here this morning, it's the word of God for many of you too. So often, if we think about it, in the midst of these seemingly hopeless things, we tend to lose our on hope, don't we? If not completely, if not permanently, at least partially or temporarily. So this morning, I'm trusting that God is going to help me and God is going to help you strengthen that grip on the hope that only He can bring. Many of you remember the great hymn which says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. One of my favorite old hymns because of that verse, because of the reality of that. So if those demotivational posters that I just read to you discouraged you, I want to give you hope here this morning because the Word of God is a book of hope. It offers hope for all of life. It offers hope for the sick. It offers hope for relationships. 
It offers hope for our loved ones, whatever their physical or their spiritual state. It offers hope for the most challenging problems in the human condition. It even offers hope for the big picture things that we noted just a few minutes ago that we see in the world around us. We read in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Why? So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's easy to say that our hope is in God. It's harder, much harder, to live like it. It's much harder to live like we believe it. It's harder to draw strength from it. But the word is absolutely full to overflowing with hope. The ultimate hope that the word of God holds out for us is redemption. It's eternal life. It's the love of God in Christ which allows those of us who accept that gift of his grace and his mercy to spend eternity with him. So anything that we hope for, and we all hope for a lot of things, don't we? But anything we hope for is founded on, based on, the hope of glory, the hope of salvation, which is based on the word of truth, the gospel of truth. The hope of salvation is the basis for any hope that we have. The foundation on which all other hopes that we have are built. Now in our house church we've been studying Hebrews, and this past Wednesday we studied chapter 11. One very clear point that we see in this chapter is that God's people are pilgrims here on earth. And as such, we always look beyond the immediate to grasp the significance of the ultimate. I want to say that again because this is an important point. We always look beyond the immediate to grasp the significance of the ultimate. We saw that the list of heroes in the faith, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, we see this whole long list of Old Testament heroes of the faith. It's the Faith Hall of Fame in chapter 11. They were flawed people just like all of us. I mean, we look at them proclaimed as heroes in Hebrews 11, but we remember because Scripture is very clear that they had flaws, that they sinned, that they let down God, right? So they're just like us. And they didn't always see God's promises fulfilled in this life. We read in Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 13. These all, referring to the first list that he gave, okay? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. In case you didn't get the idea of what the better country is, he tells us, it's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These are things we can hang on to, folks. The surety, the certainty of our hope based on Christ means that we can know that he is moving, We can know that he is working out all things for our good, and his heart is for us. It doesn't mean that everything will always work out as we wish, or when we wish. But it does mean that everything always works out for our best, for those of us who are followers 
of Christ. We read in the Psalms 33, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm, how long? Forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. In these verses, we can see God's hands in those big picture things of life, in human history, in world affairs. God's in charge of nations. God's in control. That's one of the most hopeful things we can ever say, isn't it? God's in control. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. So when we see North Korea, for example, with the capability to launch nuclear weapons at us, we can remember this verse, that God foils the plans of nations. Now, does that mean that North Korea will not someday launch a nuclear missile at us? I don't know. I don't know. But what we can know is that Kim Jong-un's plans, for whatever he has in mind, will not prevail. God's plans will prevail. His purposes for these nuclear weapons may be one thing, and God may have quite another purpose in these. So if God can spoil the plans of whole nations, what about the plans of the enemy of our souls as individual believers in Christ? The answer to that question is also in this psalm. It's the same answer. God's plans stand firm forever. His big picture plans in the world and his micro plans in our individual lives. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, folks. God's plans stand firm forever, regardless of who opposes them. Whether it's us, sometimes we oppose God's plans. Whether it's the devil, we do have an enemy of our souls who seeks to dissuade us, to keep us from him. Or whether it's some man who is foolish enough to think he is truly powerful. The purposes of God's heart stand firm through all generations. That applies to you, everyone here this morning. That applies to your children and to your children's children. It applies to this church. In that, we can rest confidently, and that gives us hope. Then let's jump down to verses 16 through 22 of this passage. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. There's a lot of definitions of hope that we could give, but what hope is not is what we commonly think of in the everyday use of the word. We talked about this Wednesday night in the house church meeting as well. That's reflected by Webster's. Hope is defined there as a feeling that what is wanted will happen. That's the way we typically, in our everyday language, use the word hope. It has a lot more to do with feelings and wishes, okay? I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope Bill's sermon is not too long today. I hope we get pizza for lunch. But in Scripture, 
Hope is way different than wishful thinking. Baker Theological Dictionary says that hope means to trust in, wait for, look for, or desire something or someone, or to expect something beneficial in the future. Looking with expectation is akin to hoping. The Word Study Dictionary defines hope as the desire of something good with an expectation of obtaining it. So there's always waiting, and there's always confident expectation involved when we hope. Holman Bible Dictionary says that hope is trustful expectation, particularly with reference to the fulfillment of God's promises. Biblical hope is the anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. More specifically, hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. This contrasts to the world's definition of hope as a feeling that what is wanted will happen. Understood in the world's way, hope can denote either a baseless optimism or a vague yearning after an unattainable good. If hope is to be genuine hope, however, it must be founded on something or someone which affords reasonable grounds for confidence in its fulfillment. The Bible bases its hope in God and his saving acts. So let's highlight just a few key things from this definition. First, hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. That brings us back to our foundation again, doesn't it? What God has already accomplished for us in his history of redemption provides us that guarantee that we are part of his plan for the future when we are in Christ. So if we apply that to our list of problems, and we all have a list of problems, and some of the things on that list can cause despair, right? Relationships, illness, the spiritual state of our loved ones, challenging jobs, our finances, any kind of suffering, physical or emotional, whatever the cause, we can be absolutely confident that because God has proven his love, he has proven his sovereignty, his care for us in the past, because he has given us the gift of eternal life through Jesus, we can have a biblical hope that he will do what is best for us and for those we love in whatever situation that we face. We see the contrast between biblical hope which, as we've noted, is sure, it's certain, and the common understanding of hope, which is wishful thinking, often with no foundation for the wish to stand on. And that's why we can affirm this part of the definition of hope, which I'll read again. If hope is to be genuine hope, it must be founded on something or someone which affords reasonable grounds for confidence in its fulfillment. The Bible bases its hope in God and his saving acts. Now, even atheists, in their most candid moments, recognize this. I found a story that a little over a month before he died, the famous atheist and philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre declared that he so strongly resisted feelings of despair that he would say to himself, I know I shall die in hope. And then, in profound sadness, he would add, but hope needs a foundation. So here's an atheist that even recognizes that hope is worthless unless it has something to stand on. 
It has a foundation. It needs a foundation, a reasonable grounds for confidence in its fulfillment. And that's what we have in the Word of God. There's no need for hope when you already have something. The very idea of hope always implies expectation. It always implies looking forward. It always implies waiting. Hope and faith are inseparable too. The biblical definition of faith, also in Hebrews chapter 11, includes the need for hope. It says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Sometimes that's why hope is difficult for us to hang on to, because we're hoping, but we're not seeing. We're hoping for something, but we're not seeing. We're either unwilling to wait, or we're unwilling to wait long enough, or we feel that we've already waited so long that God must have let us down. We feel that way sometimes, don't we? I mean, that's just reality. That's part of our our human nature. We struggle with this. So let's be honest with ourselves. We often see in Scripture the phrase, especially in the Psalms, how long, O Lord? How many of us have been there? Waiting for something we hope for is part of the human condition. Sometimes waiting a long time is also part of the human condition. 430 years, for example. And waiting can cause us to question God. Now, I think this is a pretty normal response. It is. We ask why. We ask how long. We begin to wonder if God's really going to do anything. The people of Israel wondered that a lot, didn't they? They wondered when the Messiah would come. One of the things, as we noted earlier, that he was called was the hope of Israel. It implied waiting. It implied expectation. The people of Israel also wondered about more down-to-earth things like when, when, when would God deliver them from their enemies? Of course, we also have to recognize that they were subject to their enemies in the first place because of their sin, God's judgment on them. But that's another story. They still waited on God. They still hoped. They still believed in God's redemption, even though much of their pain was largely self-inflicted. How often have we wondered if God really sees what's going on? If he does, how can he make us wait so long for his deliverance from whatever it is that afflicts us? Well, this is addressed in several places in Scripture as well. Isaiah addressed this in chapter 40, beginning with verse 21. Now, this is kind of a longer passage. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there and follow along. But if you don't, listen with me, hang with me, because it's uh, several verses. It helps us with some of the things that we've looked at here this morning. Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 21. This is the Lord speaking. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by 
name. Because of this great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Two key things I want us to notice here. First, we see this reminder again that we follow a great big God who's absolutely in charge of everything. Do you not know? Have you not heard? I don't want to insult you here, my brothers and sisters, this morning, but we're like grasshoppers. That's what Scripture tells us. We're like grasshoppers. God's the one who brings princes and rulers of the world to nothing. Saddam Hussein, footnote in history, Muammar Gaddafi, Adolf Hitler, Napoleon, all the emperors we could name. Throughout history, many men once thought that they were kings of their own little universe, and now they're all history and nothing more. Their regimes are long gone. They are worm food right now. The same God who names the stars, each of the Billions and billions of stars is the one in whom we hope. Even though, he'll get, even though he can call each of those billions of stars by name, how many of us can name everybody here in this room this morning? He can call each of those billions of stars by name. Even though rulers can be blown away like I might blow away a feather. Despite that awesome power, and here's the second thing I want to notice from this passage, God is intimately involved in each one of our lives. My way, my life, my problems, my concerns are not hidden from God. Not only does he see them, he's working on them, he's working in them, and he's working through them. It says, my cause is not disregarded by God. My cause, my cause is not disregarded by God. Now, I may not be able to see or understand always how he's working. Isaiah says this too, his understanding no one can fathom. But he is working. And in the meantime, what does he say to me? He says, wait and hope. And in the waiting, wait expectantly, hope in me. And in the waiting, what else will he do? He will give me strength for the wait. He will give me hope for that. Now, I get tired of waiting, but he never gets tired. And I can draw from his strength. Those who hope in the Lord will gain new strength. Now, here's where we see the very clear connection between hoping and waiting, because many of you no doubt remember this verse saying, those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. And that's true. Some translations say hope, some say wait. But both are correct, because think about this. Hoping inevitably involves waiting. And why would we wait on the Lord if we didn't expect something, if we didn't hope for something? We have to recognize how hard that waiting can be. Sometimes it's an absolutely bitter 
experience. It was for the prophet Jeremiah. He said in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning with verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. We've been there, haven't we? I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. This is genuine emotion, folks, being expressed by the prophet Jeremiah, one of God's servants. It's very real. But you know what? That's okay, because God is big enough to handle our very real emotions. Sometimes, though, we stop with the very strong feelings expressed in verse 20 of this passage. I remember the afflictions, and my soul is downcast. He's saying, hey, I'm hurting. I'm down, and this is incredibly hard. But Jeremiah, the writer of Lamentations, does not quit there, and neither should we. When we stop and stay there, when we pitch a tent at my soul is downcast, this is where I'm putting my stake, this is as far as I'm going, we're headed toward despair if we're not already there. We're losing hope or we're, we're already hopeless. But we can go on, as he does in Lamentations 3, beginning with verse 21 again. Yet this I call to mind. Remember that. Remember that phrase. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is my portion. He's enough. He has what I need. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Because of his love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. His compassions are new every morning. We don't have to rely on yesterday's mercy and compassion from God. We can draw on a fresh source of compassion today, his fresh mercy. He's faithful to provide what we need when we need it. And Jeremiah, what did he do? He called this to mind. He remembered it. He reminded himself of this great truth. We can too, folks. We can too. We can remind ourselves and we can remind each other. David, the psalmist, King David, encouraged himself in the Lord. We can too. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, that David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. Can't understand why he'd be distressed. Hey, they're going to stone me. Big deal. No, he was distressed. They were talking about stoning him. I wouldn't look forward to that. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How can we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? Well, we already saw how the word of God is meant to be a means of grace for us to give us hope. I'll read that passage again. I read it earlier. It's from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For everything that was written, actually it's on your bulletin cover this morning. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us why so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It takes the activity of the Holy Spirit to make us wise, even though God will more often than not use the Scriptures as His agents. It takes the Holy Spirit to make us righteous, even though, again, 
The Word of God is the primary tool that God uses for that purpose, to convict, admonish, and correct, and train us for righteousness. So my prayer is this, that we recognize that just as faith and love and any other thing that we want from God is a gift, right? It's a gift from God. So is hope. So is hope. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, we read this, may the God of hope, so this is a prayer, right? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Why? So that you may overflow with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That means it's God. It's God's gift to us. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace, that means it's his gift, gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So folks, it's a gift of his grace. If it's an action of the power of the Holy Spirit, in our lives through the instrument of a word, there's not a lot we can do to work it up by gritting our teeth, right? That's what we do sometimes. I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to hope, I'm going to hope, I'm going to hope. No, we say, God, I just throw myself on your mercy. I need you, Lord. I cannot do this. God, please help me. May your Holy Spirit infuse me with hope. That's what it's about, folks. The only thing we can do is ask and cooperate with the means of grace that he's given us, like the Word of God. We need to read the Word. We want hope. We need to read the Word because there's hope in the Word. As we said, the Word is a book that is full of hope. Now, I think some of us here this morning are barely clinging to hope. I know a lot about what's going on, and we, we remark on this in elders' meetings as we pray for this body. And we actually pray through the directory over a course of three, four months, and then now we're back to the beginning again. And we pray for you individually. And we pray when we know about specific things that are going on in your lives. And we remark that we are in a tough season, folks. We really are. We recognize that. There's so many of us who are struggling with hard, hard, hard things. So that's why some of us are barely clinging to hope. And some of us are on the verge of losing hope or may have lost hope. I think many more of us, and I would put myself in this category sometimes, I'm on the roller coaster. I have hope one day, and the next day the circumstances of life batter that hope, and it's lost or nearly lost again. And then I'm, you know, it's that roller coaster up and down. I mean, it's fairly constant. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. God's compassion never fails. His mercies are new every morning. The psalmist in Psalm 27 knows that without hope, and not just hope, but specifically hope in the Lord, there's nothing but despair. We read in Psalm 27, beginning with verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. We can all say that sometimes, can't we? I would have despaired unless I believed. And though the foundation 
of our hope for anything in this life is firmly built on the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. Hope in him applies to this life as well. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord where? In the land of the living. We've already seen that our ultimate hope is in eternal life, and it must be there. It must be founded on that. But we can still have hope here in the land of the living where all of us are. And his best promise, and here's something that we overlook sometimes. His best promise is always true. I will be with you always. I will be with you always. So when we don't get a promise from God that this is going to happen, what I want is going to happen, we can always rest in, I will be with you always. And that means today. That means today. Back to an earlier chapter we read from, Psalm 33, verses 20 and 21. And now we're going to read from verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. And then in verse 22 is my prayer for me this morning and my prayer for all of you. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So this morning, if you've lost hope about anything that's important to you, or if you're on the verge of losing hope, Or if you're like me and sometimes you feel like you're on that hope roller coaster. Hope, not so much. Hope, not so much, right? And you scream on the way down, right? That's what you do when you go down on a roller coaster. Having hope for a time and then heading toward the hopeless end of the track. I want to tell you that your deliverer is coming. Your deliverer is coming. I look around this room and I see some of you and I know that you're hanging on. You're trying to hang on. Your deliverer is coming. I want to tell you that this morning. There's a song by Rich Mullins with that title. Anybody heard that song? You're going to hear it this morning if you haven't. We're going to hear it in a minute. But before we do, I want to highlight some of the lyrics because I want to make sure you note some of these key things. When Israel was held captive by Egypt, they cried out to God for deliverance. In the time of Jesus' birth, Simeon and Anna, you remember that, waited and hoped for confidence for the deliverer, the Messiah. Now, in this song, Rich Mullins pictures Jesus. He imagines Jesus after his family fled to Africa to escape Herod, right? In the song, he imagines the boy Jesus hearing the song of the captive children of Israel centuries earlier, okay? It's as if that song of the crying out for deliverance was still in the wind, crying out to God in hope for his deliverance. And there's a verse that I want you to listen for, okay, in the song we're going to hear in a minute. Through a dry and thirsty land, water from the Kenyan heights pours itself out of length Sangra's broken heart. There in the Sahara winds, Jesus heard the whole world cry for the healing that would flow from his own scars. Now, this verse is pointing to Africa, and it's drawing an illustration from the geography of that great continent. That's because the Sahara Desert runs along, if you you picture Africa in your mind, the Sahara Desert runs along the top of the continent, the northern part of the continent, and much, most of it is actually very dry and dusty and desolate. But below the Sahara Desert is the country of Kenya, among other places, but Kenya, where Mount Kenya is located. Now, We've all heard of Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Kenya is the second highest mountain in Africa. And uh, at its top is a very rare occurrence. It is a 
tropical glacier. This is in the tropics, but there's actually a glacier up there. And the runoff water from that glacier atop Mount Kenya sends cool, clean water down into streams and tributaries to the dry and thirsty lands below that mountain. So uh, I found this this morning. Mullins writes of a lake called Sangra, and a quick internet search reveals that there is no Lake Sangra in Kenya. So what is Rich Mullins meaning by this? The word Sangra means bleed or blood. He draws this beautiful word picture of the waters of Mount Kenya flowing into a lake of blood that then flows out to a dry and dusty land to do more than just quench physical thirst, but quench the cry of the thirsty soul in need of rescue, deliverance, and forgiveness of sin. And this deliverance flows from his own scars. So I tell you this in advance because I never caught the connection, okay, until I found this. God's deliverance, in whatever form it takes, always flows from the sacrifice of Jesus, from his own blood. So as we listen to this song this morning, let's listen prayerfully and carefully, okay? As we listen to this song, whatever you're facing, I want you to remember something else we've talked about in house church. There's the already, and then there's the not yet. But I want you to remember this, my deliverer is coming. Here on the first Sunday of Advent, we can have hope in our deliverer. He may deliver us today. He may not. But he will deliver us in eternity. This we can rely on. Regardless of when it comes, regardless of how it comes, my deliverer is coming. The infant Jesus marked the first Advent. That's the already. It's accomplished. It's done. It's history, folks. But his second advent will see him coming again, not in the manger, but in power and in glory in the clouds where every eye will see him. I want you to think about these things prayerfully as we close with this video.